one of the things that's important to nice guys is that they're always trying to look good. So I no longer am trying to look good. I'm trying to look real, but I'm not, and I'm not trying to look good. Hello and welcome, fellow human. My name is Zachary Stockhill, and you are listening to Humans in Love, a podcast that looks at culture, relationships, and personal development from unconventional perspectives. Join me as I dig into the question of how people like you and I might get more out of life and love. Thanks for being here. friend, Zachary Stockhill here, and thank you for joining me for another episode of Humans in Love. I am feeling fantastic. Just got back from the gym after a long, very long absence. I am sore all over, but uh, still feeling good. I hope you are able to get some exercise wherever you are in the world, because back to the gym after a few months and after several months of being very lazy physically, my body is, uh, I didn't realize how much I missed that kind of physical exertion and how great it makes me feel. So yeah, I hope you're finding ways to stay active and stay healthy wherever in the world you are through this bizarre, apocalyptic, strange period that we're all living through. I have a really fun conversation for you today. My guest is Dr. Michael Pariser. Dr. Pariser is a psychoanalyst based in California. He lives on a boat, which is pretty darn cool as far as I'm concerned. We talk about that in this episode. He's also the author of the newly released book, workbook. It's called No More Mr. Nice Guy, The Hero's Journey. And if that title sounds familiar, you might remember that recently I interviewed Dr. Robert Glover on this podcast for, I believe, the third time. Dr. Glover is the author of the iconic men's self-help classic, No More Mr. Nice Guy. And he officially sanctioned Dr. Pariser's book, as well as wrote the foreword to it. And the workbook, we'll get into it in this episode, but the workbook is tremendous. It's basically an active workbook for recovering nice guys. If you're brand new to the podcast, you might not remember nice guy syndrome and whether or not you qualify as a, quote, nice guy. But we get into that in this episode as well. I really think today's episode, today's conversation will be valuable for the women as well, but particularly for any men in long-term relationships looking to level up, looking to up their game, so to speak, looking to reclaim their masculinity. I think you'll get a lot out of today's chat. We talk about Dr. Pariser's work in dealing with men's issues and men's therapy. We also talk about his own journey from nice guy to recovering nice guy, his new book, Living on a Boat, the coronavirus pandemic and how to stay grounded and calm through these bizarre times that we're all living through, and a whole lot more. Really enjoyed connecting with Dr. Pariser. I'm sure I'll have him back on the show sometime soon. Before we get into it, I'll remind you that ratings and reviews are very important for any podcast success, including this one. So if you dig the show, please take 30 seconds out of your day and leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice. Without any further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Michael Pariser. Dr. Pariser, thank you very much for making time for me today and coming on the show. Thank you. Uh, it's a pleasure, and thank you for having me. So first off, I have to ask, and judging by your background, uh, and as well as an, another interview I saw with you, you live on a boat? I do, yeah. 
What is Marina that like? Del Rey. Oh, it's fantastic. Um, you know, I, I originally, I always had in the back of my mind, whenever I needed to move from an apartment or sell a house I was living in, uh, well, maybe I'll move on to a boat. But I always had, mostly like when I there was a breakup, you know, and I was alone, I thought, oh, well, I'll go live on a boat and I'll live this exotic life. But then I would always think, well, boats are small and narrow and damp and the laundry is hanging and it's dark and you're cooking on a hot plate and you can't keep your balance and it smells like fish and and then a friend of mine invited me down for brunch on his boat and it was a big spacious thing and stable and dry and didn't smell like fish and I thought to myself you know what I could, it happened to be at a time when I really needed a place to live. So I thought, yeah, I could do this. So the next day I went out looking for a boat and that was six years ago and I've been living on it ever since. Okay. It's going to take some serious restraint on my part to not just talk about that for the entire hour. <laughs> and that's really interesting. Well, well, we could have a well, talk about it and then we'll have a different interview about the book. I no, no. <laughs> Well, I, I do. Obviously, I do want to talk about your new book, but just boat. I mean, what's the biggest drawback living on a boat? I mean, six years. Like, yeah. Like, what, what's the biggest drawback? It's kind of the drawbacks are basically the same as the drawbacks of living on an RV. Hmm. So that it's 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 got to be self-contained. All systems, including the toilets and the kitchen and the lights and the heat and the air conditioning, everything's got to be self-contained. And so there's much more, you know, ongoing maintenance. You don't have a gardener. You don't have to mow the lawn. But you do have to keep the engines running and you do have to keep all the boat systems operating. And it's... Unless you can afford some gigantic yacht, like 100 feet, 200, you know, these soup mega yachts, there isn't quite enough space uh, the way there is in a house where you just spread out, where you have a big kitchen or a lot of closets. So you don't have a lot of closet space. And even my boat's 56 feet. And so that's a pretty big boat and it's pretty wide and it still does. It's got enough space for me, but about five months ago, I, six months ago, I started dating this woman and she's basically living with me. Not basically, she's living with me. <laughs> and, and so then we get into closet space and we get into how many people can work at the, in the kitchen and that kind of stuff. So, um, uh, and even if you own the boat, you're still paying slip fees and and maintenance fees. So that's that's the downside. Okay. Well, your your timing of uh, moving in with with this new woman was pretty good, given the the quarantine. Oh man, was that it ever? Through. Yeah. Although it could have been terrible because that's true too. I mean, this is a lot of uh, pressure to put on a new relationship. Certainly. And. And so it happened, I, I got lucky. It's, she's somebody who's very easy to live with. That's great. Well, one thing I've been asking all of my guests, and again, I make it a point to not really talk about 
what some people call topical items, you know, things in the news and all the rest. But I've been making an exception because this is such an extraordinary time that we're all living through. I mean, my, my inclination is to ask, although it might be difficult to, to answer, what has this experience taught you, this strange quarantine, pandemic, apocalyptic period that we're all living to? What do you think you've, well, A, first, firstly, what has this period just been like for you personally? And what have you learned through this strange period that we're all living through? What it's been like is, in a funny sense, it, it goes along with where I was going anyway in life, which was um, I had about a year ago, I stopped seeing patients to be able to sit down and write. And, and that's what I'm doing. And I discovered that I, I really quite like the calm, the peace, uh, the artistic focus. And so it, it wasn't, it's not hurting me at all on a professional level. It feel, it actually feels quite kind of in sync with where I am emotionally right now. Um, in terms of, you know, friends and family, that's a different story. I, I, I don't get to see them the way I'd like. Um, but I get to see my girlfriend a whole lot. Uh, yeah. uh, she makes up for it. Great. So, so it's actually been pretty good. And, and as you, you might've read, there's a lot of people buying boats these days, along with RVs and bicycles, because, you know, they can't send the kids to camp uh, and they can't go to Europe for the summer. And so they've got the money at least some of them do. And so people are buying boats. And so they, it's a big, you know, big boating uh, extravaganza right now, like at least all over America. I had heard so, about guns. I hadn't heard about boats. <laughs> for, buy more. People are buying guns for different reasons, yeah. obviously. But uh, although that, I think, has stopped. In the beginning, everybody was terrified of a breakdown in the social order. That hasn't happened. Mm. Um, uh, so everybody, there were lines outside gun stores, which isn't the case anymore. Mm. But, uh, but yeah, they're buying boats because people want to get out of the house and do something that, they, that won't imperil them. And getting on a boat with the people that you love and already know are safe is a thing you can do. Plus, you can just pull up the anchor and take off if things get really hairy, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't need a gun. I, yeah, I exactly. Have, I have a moat called yeah. the Pacific Ocean. <laughs> That's tremendous. Well, as long as we're talking about this this topic and this theme, I was noticing on your blog that you talk about, or you were writing about people managing fear and anxiety during this hmm. period of profound uncertainty. Do you have any just general thoughts on how can people can better manage their emotions during this, again, this very strange period we're all living through? Well, my first answer has nothing to do with the period that we're living through. It has to do with my feelings about emotions in general. So emotions are my specialty. 
I'm actually working with a partner creating a mobile app to help raise people's level of emotional intelligence. I believe that this is the thing that we can do that will help people more than anything else in the whole wide world. And so the basic rule of feelings is feel them. Um, what happens is that people run away from their feelings. And when they do, bad things tend to happen because the, the underlying emotion doesn't disappear. It just gets expressed in a different kind of a way. So instead, if you're, if you're you know, angry at your girlfriend, let's say, and you don't sit down and say, I'm angry at you, she keeps doing whatever she's doing that pissed you off and you only get angrier and then you explode. Um, this is what uh, Robert Glover talks about in, in his book, No More Mr. Nice Guy, which is the idea that he, he talks about something called a victim puke. And what, what that is, is you say yes when you want to say no, but you feel resentful and then you do it again and the resentment builds and you do it again. And the little by little, the resentment and the anger and the frustration ratchet up until, you know, she says one more thing and you explode. And she looks at you and goes, what did I say? What was so terrible about this one thing? And um, the answer is nothing. It just, it was the, as my then three-year-old sister once said, the strawberry that broke the camel's back. Mm. Yeah, that's well put. It's, it's funny, I had a very similar moment uh, just two nights ago where I have a, a family member who's having a bit of a health crisis. And obviously that's very concerning and scary. And I was kind of carrying around this energy all day. And then I had a date in the evening. And so we're walking on the beach. It's this gorgeous night. And I don't want to bring her down. I don't want to talk about my, you know, my issue. And she says, well, what's wrong? Like, I know you, like something's up. And it was, and I immediately, mm -hmm. my reaction was, no, 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 I'm fine. I'm good. And there was even some resentment in me during that moment because it's, I'm not letting that emotion, not that I have to do the victim puke. I completely know what you're talking about. But then she said, no, 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 like what's really wrong. And the moment I just said, well, actually here's what's going on. Immediately there's this sense of, ah, like this letting yes. go of resentment and not resentment toward her, but resentment toward my own self-imposed censorship, if you know what I mean. Yes, that's right. And, and but I want to add something that the self-imposed censorship because if you're a nice guy, the self-imposed censorship is all about trying to make her feel okay or make her feel good or not make her feel bad, mm. which then is in a way of protecting yourself. And what it does in a funny sense, and tell me if you agree with me on this, is it infantilizes the other person. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a good word uh, for it. If she's a grown-up, and I'm sure she is, she certainly sounds like one, I like to give people the choice. I like to treat them like adults and say, okay, here's the situation. You're right. There's something bothering me. Here's the headline. Do you want to talk about it or not talk about it? I'm, I'm going to be okay either way, but let's 
let's talk about talking about it and give her a choice to say yes or no, what she wants. Hmm. I'd like to ask you about this. I wasn't planning on this, but uh, you mentioned that you stopped seeing patients recently so you could write and finish your book and all that. And so I do coaching and I coach a lot of men one-on-one. And one thing I've noticed from recovering nice guys is sometimes they err in the opposite direction. They, they, the pendulum swings too far the other way where it's nothing but voicing emotions and all this stuff all the time. And I think partly my moment the other night is because I'm very conscious of that and I don't want to be one of those guys. So there's mm-hmm. something about the, you know, the man who takes care of his own business, who, you know, endures certain experiences with silence and stoicism. There's something about that that still appeals to me on some level, simply because I've been influenced by some of the people I've been coaching, for example, to, because yeah. I, I watch them go too far in the opposite direction. But I mean, you can comment on that if you want. But uh, uh, before we do, it's probably worth defining. I mean, so for anyone listening to this, because there's always people who are brand new to no more Mr. Nice Guy, Nice Guy Syndrome. What does Nice Guy Syndrome mean to you? Nice Guy Syndrome is a, um, it's basically an approach to life that centers around the idea that if you make other people happy, that if you're selfless and um, never put your needs first, put other people's needs first, that, that you're going to live a wonderful life and get everything that you ever wanted without asking for it, as including and especially the love that you're looking for. Mm. Um, and th- that's it in a kind of a nutshell. Yeah. There's a million things that nice guys do, a million ways that tends to express itself, but that's the basic nut of it. And you've openly described yourself, and I've, I've watched several interviews in your book as well, you describe yourself as a recovering nice guy. So mm. maybe you could talk a little bit about what that means to you. What does it mean to be a recovering nice guy? And how did you get to that, that point? Good question. And let me tie it in with uh, what you were saying about swinging the pendulum swinging in the other direction. Um, to recover from a way of being, a a kind of a large scale way of being, whether it's a nice guy or a recluse or a hoarder or whatever it happens to be, is first off to get to the underlying feelings that are driving the behavior. And most often it's fear. Behind the fear, there's a kind of, there's a depressive core that, that it's almost like has a, an incredibly powerful gravitational field. It's a dark hole that, like a black hole that pulls everything into it. And so the fear on a, a really fundamental level is about falling into the black hole and never coming out again. So recovering is a a process whereby you let go of all of the ways that you've developed over the years, or many of the ways, to keep yourself away from what you fear, particularly the black hole. And recognize that as a grown-up, you can handle this stuff that you couldn't when you were a kid. 
which is when it all got developed. So as you give up some of these things, well, strange things happen. Sometimes the pendulum swings. Sometimes it, it doesn't budge enough. There's going, it's like you play a sport. Yeah, I swim and I, I've played hockey and baseball. Okay. So imagine a baseball swing. It's hard to hit a baseball, particularly yes, at, a, at a high level. So let's say you, uh, you've been swinging in a particular way in, in college, and now you go up to double A ball, and uh, you have a hitting coach, and he wants to change something. He notices you're, you're batting about 240, but it, that's not going to take you up to triple A or the pros, right? Unless so, I'm a power hitter, yes. <laughs> unless you're all right a consistent power hitter yeah. when you connect you really connect <laughs> so um so he works on you and when you the first thing you got to do um is start to stop doing is stop doing what you've been doing you because you can't do the old and the new at the same time there's a therapist who wrote an article called staying the same while changing which is what everybody wants to do. I'll just add this, it doesn't work. So you gotta undo it. And when you undo it, all kinds of shit breaks loose. And for a while you are going to be a mess until you learn the new swing. And that's the same thing with it, knowing how to hit a baseball, knowing how to hit a tennis ball, knowing how to relate to another human being on a certain level, they're very similar. It's hmm. about knowing how. And once you stop doing what you already know how to do and try to do other things, there's a learning curve. And, and in a learning curve, you're going to get it wrong a lot. Hmm. You'll undercompensate, you'll overcompensate, you'll do all kinds of things. What got you to the point where you realized, holy shit, I'm a nice guy and I need something needs to change here? I was in, you know, going through my life, which worked sometimes, it didn't work. I knew I had problems and I was in therapy and I was trying my best to work on the problems. And I was doing a pretty good job and things were getting better, but they weren't getting better enough. What and kind of problems? I, I was depressed. I was working on that and that was getting better, but it was still around. I had interpersonal problems. I was kind of competitive with people. I was a nice guy. I had nice guy stuff. So I was trying to be selfless, but also acting like a victim. I would be, I would give everybody else decision-making power, then find tricky ways to take it back. I mean, there were, there were a lot of things that I was, relationships didn't last. I was never satisfied. I thought I was settling. Um, uh, I had a lot of issues in relationships, dominating or controlling, but then feeling dominated or controlled. So there, I think there were just, there were a whole lot of things going on. In, in point of fact, that's, in, 
I think uh, if you watch the interview I, I did with Robert Glover, um, I talked about this, the idea that there were so many problems. They seemed like a million problems and I, I, I couldn't figure out how to deal with them all. They just seemed like each one seemed different. And it was like being in, in a swarm of bees and getting stung from all directions. And what happened was I read Robert Glover's book, No More Mr. Nice Guy, and suddenly things made sense in a different way. It's like suddenly I could see where all the bees were coming from. I was still getting stung by all the bees, but now I could see that they belonged to a hive, you know, with a queen, my mother. Um, and uh, and so there, it seemed like there was one big problem rather than a million little problems. And that helped me to shift the focus of my work to the kind of to the central conviction that I had and start to shift that. And so when you're, you're talking about being in therapy and dealing with a number of these problems, were you a psychotherapist at this point? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm just kind of curious what that's like. I mean, does that complicate things to some extent when you are ostensibly helping other people sort out their problems and you're dealing with this inner strife and struggle yourself? You know, I would say yes, except for the fact that every psychotherapist deals with problems, whether they're nice guy problems or whatever problems. Um, Psychotherapists have no fewer problems than anybody else. They may have worked harder on them, but they still got them. Um, if you're going to coach people, you know, I, 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 used, I teach classes on psychotherapy and emotions and stuff. And I, I'll say to a, the class, what's the difference between a patient and a non-patient? And everybody thinks about it. And they scratch their head and they make a bunch of guesses. And the commonest guess is, well, the patient has emotional problems. And the answer is, no, not at all. Everybody has emotional problems, including the therapist. The difference is the patient's willing and able to pay for your services. That's the only difference. Mm. Uh, it's like the guys you coach. They're the ones who are willing to pay for your services. Everybody else has the same problems or their own set of problems. So psychotherapists have problems. And sometimes, I don't know about you, sometimes we feel like um, uh, hypocrites or imposters because I've got to, you know, particularly when the patient brings up an issue you haven't resolved yet, Mm. Um, and you think, fuck, man, I, <laughs> I have no right to be treating this person. In fact, he's farther down the road than I am. So I, I don't like, uh, I better keep my damn mouth shut at this point in time. Mm. But mostly that doesn't happen. And, um, in fact, I want to add one little point and then I'll get back to you. Sigmund Freud said, and I found this to be true, he did his best work when he was slightly depressed. Hmm. Interesting. I mean, that, that could lead to a whole discussion. I mean, I'm obsessed with music and how much great music, great art has emerged from depression. This is a different point than you're making, but yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. 
coming back to mm. psychotherapists and therapy, I always think of uh, my favorite shows, The Sopranos, and Dr. Melfi, Tony's therapist, is in therapy herself, and that was a great storyline. So yes, absolutely. Um, coming back to to nice guy syndrome and no more Mr. Nice Guy. Did you always have an interest in working with men in particular, men's development work? I mean, did you have any exposure to that world either in your in your personal life or in your private practice before you found Dr. Glover's work? I didn't have it in private practice, although when you're a male these days, in the old days, way back in the day, <clears throat> all, almost all therapists were male, particularly psychoanalysts. Although from the beginning, you know, Freud said, you know, women were equal. Um, and so there were women psychoanalysts right from the very beginning. But um, still there were more, uh, the requirement in America that to be a psychoanalyst, you had to be an MD basically said there's going to be a lot more men than women. These days, that requirement's changed, and the entire field is now um, primarily female. So that um, when you're a male and you're an older male, like I started, I saw my first patient in the year 2000. I was 49 years old. So I'm already an older male. So, you know, guys come and that this is what they want, you know, an older male who can model, you know, kind of strength and decisiveness and assertiveness while also being open emotionally, or at least kind of in that direction, a balance. So, um, so I did get a, a lot of male patients, but it wasn't a specialty of mine. However, in my personal life, I was always interested in it. I, I spent oh, almost 20 years in a men's emotional support group that I started uh, back in like 1981. And I, I uh, uh, you know, I, I went to, I did the what's called the Warrior Weekend, the Mankind Project Warrior Weekend. And I, you know, I read a lot of men's literature. And so I, I was, it, it was something that was of interest to me. Well, and so, yeah, go ahead. No, sorry. I was just going to say we can, it's a nice segue into talking about the book specifically. So No More Mr. Nice Guy, The Hero's Journey. Um, what inspired you to, to write this book? Where did this come from? Once I started working with nice guys who had read Dr. Glover's book, we realized that we all had a similar experience. And that was, we, read, we had read Dr. Glover's book and just kind of felt absolutely described to a T in the book. We just really found ourselves there. And we all had the same question. Well, okay, I, I admit it, this is me. Now what? And if, you, if you've read Dr. Glover's book, you know he's got something he calls breaking free activities. 
he doesn't have quite that many and they're kind of sketchy. And the real message of the book is get a therapist. I, I once said to him and I said, you know, your book's not a self-help book because nobody can use it to really help themselves. It's like, go get a therapist and let him help you. All right, but not very many therapists are trained, have read this book or have trained in this way of working. Um, and at least before the pandemic, not everybody had a geographically available therapist. Now that everybody's doing telehealth, you can get somebody from anywhere in the world, but up to that point, you couldn't. So I said to Robert Glover and I have become friends. So he comes, he lives down in Puerto Vallarta. His mother's up in Seattle. He goes through Los Angeles. And when he does, he stays on the boat. And we have dinner and wine and chat and like conversations about stuff. And it, we've done some workshops together here in Los Angeles. And so one day I said to him, you know, Robert, like everybody wants something like, how do I get from here to there, the, the roadmap? And so like, you need to write the workbook to know more Mr. Nice Guy. And he said, I don't want to. So I said, well, I'll write it with you. And he said, I don't want to. You write it. So that's how I, I, I that's how it came about. I said, okay, I'll write it. Um, now he was involved to the extent that he, he read some early drafts and he wrote the forward. And it was Robert who kind of latched onto the idea of the hero's journey. And originally to me, it was the workbook to know more Mr. Nice Guy, but he, he pushed me to, to bring that out. And so, and so I did, and it, and and it's part of what made the, my book a more of a standalone book than just a companion book. Yeah, and I think it, I've I've heard you tell that story before, and I think you tell me what you think of this, but I think it speaks to Dr. Glover's integrity in, in a lot of way to sort of give you his blessing and to encourage you, and even you even use the title in in the in the title of the book, mm -hmm. and it's it's pretty cool. Yeah, it's pretty cool. He's he has tremendous integrity. He is a really good man and a really generous guy. And I my life is significantly richer for for having encountered his mind both in print and in person. I'm actually I'm speaking to him later tonight, so I'll tell him you said so. <laughs> oh, don't tell him that. No, of course <laughs> we, <not. laughs> Yes, please. Yeah. Tell him I said that. Um, so let's get into the hero's journey. So I'm sure many people will know, will be familiar with that term and maybe Joseph Campbell and Star Wars and all the rest. But for people who aren't uh, familiar with it, what does the hero's journey mean to you? I, it means, what does the hero's journey mean to me? It, it's about the experience of psychological growth and change. Uh, it's whenever you set out to change something major in your life, particularly psychologically, it means leaving what's come to be known as the comfort zone, the, the, your day-to-day -day life, and moving out into the 
an unknown realm. And now we're talking in kind of mythological or archetypal terms. And Campbell was influenced by Jung as well as Freud. And so we are talking about kind of uh, visual metaphors and archetypal imagery and mythological narratives, um, which kind of elevate the story. And e even though my story is not mythological, it's fun and exciting and stimulating um, to, to think of it in that way, to see yourself in a heroic position. Uh, as long as you kind of keep that in, in check a little bit, and you understand that you, you're, when you go to, when you go to work, you, you can't like tell the boy, like everybody what a hero you are. Just, it's an internal process. Um, but I also spent like 25 years working in the movie business. And so the hero's journey is part of almost every story. You mentioned Star Wars, it happens to be a particularly clear example, but it's buried in almost every story. Uh, every, every, every good film is about, is, or almost, not everyone, but almost everyone is about some sort of psychological change. And, um, somebody starting out uh, with a limitation or a problem that then gets resolved by the end. And you kind so, of, yeah, go ahead. No, sorry to interrupt. I was just going to say in, in the book, you kind of establish and you tell me if I'm interpreting this wrong, but it seems to me that the end goal, if we can call it that, is to become a more integrated man, as, as you call it. Yes. I'm intrigued by this term and I'd appreciate if you could unpack this a little bit more. I mean, what does being an integrated man mean to you? Like, what does that look like for you? And you can even speak just practically if you like. Sure. Well, the term integration, which I borrowed from Robert Glover, to me has to do with the integration of all aspects of yourself. So, one of the important things is to integrate those things that we have been pushing away um, for fear that they'll lead to rejection and things we're ashamed of, things we think make us look bad. So there's an integration of all aspects of your humanity, whether it's your maleness, your feelings, your impulses, your desires, your sexuality, all of it. To be able to integrate it into who you are so that you can then go and live life forward, not backward, live life from a place of, here's what I feel, here's what I like, here's what I want, and use that to go forward into the world and get the life, get the things um, that you're looking for that will make you happy. If you had to boil it down, who is this book for? Who do you think listening to this could really benefit from your work? Other than nice guys? Yeah. Is there, is there a more specific sort of ideal reader you had in mind? 
I don't think. In point of fact, I would go the other way. My as I was writing this, I kept thinking, how can I write this for everybody? And I I because I I set out to write a companion book to No More Mr. Nice Guy, I stuck with that. Um, um, maybe selfishly, I thought that it would have a built-in market. Um, or because I know this work, this specifics better, and uh, because um, I, I, if I made it for everybody, it would be this big, and and maybe because I thought it would take years and years to write it, so I, I just stuck with nice guys. But um, I would love to write a book for people in general no more mrs nice girl yeah um no yeah goodbye goody two shoes was the title i came up oh with, that's but, good that's good but it's yeah but um and i i would want to write that with a woman mm. um and uh i'd have to see who's out there. I think once, if I get established as someone who wrote a book, maybe there's some, there's somebody out there who might be a good, who's written something as well that would be a good candidate to co-write with. Mm. Let's, let's talk about women. One of my favorite topics. Um, you mentioned earlier that you, you got, I love them. Yeah, of course. Me too. Um, you mentioned earlier that you got a new relationship earlier this year. And I guess, you know, I'm really interested in knowing more about your own kind of hero's journey. And so like, you know, and you can take this question however you want, but I'm curious how you are showing up in dating and relationships differently today compared to maybe 15, 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, well, the first, that's a good question. The first thing is I show up, um, wearing my feelings and my desires on my sleeve. S rather than going in trying to make them happy, I'm going in trying to make me happy, which turns out to make them happy, much happier as well, because I'm honest. Um, and I, I'm, I'm much more authentic. And I, so I'll say, I want this. And, and I encourage something back, like I don't want that, or I want something different. And that, so that we can now have a relationship based on a, a mutual uh, desire, a mutual understanding, mutual authenticity. So that that's a big one. Um, a second thing is that I, since I'm owning what I want, what I like, and what I don't like, I also try to own my badness. So I don't, I'm no longer, one of the things that's important to nice guys is that they're always trying to look good. So I'm not, I no longer am trying to look good. I'm trying to look real. But I'm not, and I'm not trying to look good. Um, and behind that, I assume that if I'm real, there and there, it that triggers something that my partner doesn't like. We can talk about it, 
and there's something going to be okay about my whatever it is that's real. It's coming from a place. It's not. I'm not an evil man. Um, I have selfish moments. I have spiteful, but I'm not an evil man. And so if I say or do something that hurts her, I want to know about it. I want to talk about it. Uh, I want to. I want to be curious about it and get to the bottom of it. And sort out whose part is what part. <clears throat> and that then takes me to another thing, which is I, since I'm now owning my badness, I'm clearer and more confident about saying to somebody, I think that's your part. Or, you know, I don't like that you're doing that. Or I don't think that's really me in this particular, or or this particular part of it is me. I think you're making a contribution to this as well that needs to be acknowledged. And I can be confident in that because I'm talking about my contribution. I'm not trying to hide it. Hmm. So I did some quick math. You tell me if I'm wrong, but are you 69 now? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious about the differences between dating at 69 compared to me. I'm in my early 30s. I mean, what are the main differences there? The, uh, the, the age gap between me and my girlfriend is much <laughs> bigger than between you and your girlfriend. <laughs> Simple as that. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's that and... Um, I'm just, I'm more okay being me. I'm more tolerant. Um, I'm more patient. I'm less threatened. Uh, I'm more, and this is not just about age, but because there's plenty of old fuckers who, who are assholes, right? So it's also got to do with the work that I did. I, I, try my best to give from a place of generosity rather than to get something. And I feel more, this is Erickson's term, I feel more generative. I like giving, I like helping, I like, um, I don't, I have a lot. I don't mean in terms of money and possessions, but I have what I need. And, and that's, because which comes from self-acceptance. So I, if I, 20 or 30 years ago, if I had a spiteful thought, a malicious thought, uh, a thought I wanted to fuck somebody else, or like whatever the, whatever thoughts I had or feelings that I felt guilty and ashamed about, I had to hide them, I had to do things. I, now I can just say, you know, what's on my mind. I don't have to get something to make up for that. I don't have to, I don't, I, I can just simply be okay with whatever that is. So I don't need anything because I don't think there's anything wrong with what I am feeling or thinking. Hmm. So I can be more generous because I'm not scurrying around trying to get. I have. I give. And that makes the relationship much better. That's beautiful. Yeah, that's really well put. 
So for anyone who's just listening to this, I've been noticing, and again, I watched, <clears throat> excuse me, I watched a few of your interviews. You wear a necklace and it looks like a dog tag, but it's a puzzle piece. And I've noticed you've been wearing that in all of your interviews. What's the story behind that? It, it says on it, well, it's a puzzle piece and my girlfriend wears the same thing. And it's, she got them when we were just, it's kind of like a letter sweater. Um, it, it's like uh, she got it when we first started dating and it says, you are my person and the puzzle pieces fit together. So. <laughs> That's pretty cute. Pretty cute, Dr. Paris. <laughs> yes, it's fucking cute. <laughs> I'm old. You know what? I'm old enough to be cute. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Um, what are you what are you most excited about these days? What what are, what is motivating you when you wake up in the morning? What are you what are you jazzed up about? Uh a, a lot of things. First off, I wake up next to this beautiful woman and I and I put my arms around her and I feel her warmth and I look at her and I kiss her and tell her I love her and she tells me she loves me and and I feel so lucky to be alive, you know. I'm lucky to have this woman in my life. It's fantastic. And then I get up and I'm on this boat and the the water is well it's the marina the water is not blue but it's water and there's what there's boats and seagulls and sea lions and uh it's just gorgeous out there um and i'm working on i'm excited about finishing up you would think the book is finished but it's really not there the ebooks out on kindle but they've they keep screwing up the cover of the paperback and a lot of people want the paperback because it's at least something of a workbook. So um, I'm trying desperately to get them to color correct the cover at which point it'll be available on Kindle. Meanwhile, I got another company trying to get an ebook available on the other venues like Barnes and Noble and Apple. And I'm also doing a uh, paperback through Barnes and Noble. So there's a lot of that going on that pushes me. And um, the, then there's the app about emotional intelligence. I've done a lot of writing, you know, content. There's some content that still needs to be done. And then we're going to start moving into design and, and creation. So that's happening as well. Mm. And I think um, finally, I'm trying after because I'm 69. I'm actually trying to learn how to hit a golf ball. Oh wow! Well, well, because you know I've I've read that you know the golf is the last stage before death. So <laughs> I figured it's my time now. Yeah. So Medicare, Social Security, golf, death—that's kind of the 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 life cycle. It's actually so, the law. Yeah, they passed yeah. the law. You have to start golfing once you turn 60. Yeah. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and if you can find your way around it, you, you're immortal. Yeah. You know that, right? I've because if you well. don't play golf, you'll never die. Right. <laughs> so I, I, I play, I'm learning how to hit a golf ball. And it's, it's not to play golf. I don't even go out on the golf course. I just go to driving range and hit golf balls at this point in time. And um, it's more of like... I. I don't know about you. I did martial arts for about 20 years. Mm. And um, 
it's kind of like trying to, you know, do a basic martial arts move. Like, um, here's a, a quick story. When I was training, the the not my sensei who was like some seventh degree or eighth, the you know the master of masters who like you know, they once asked them what you know the first thing you learn in karate is a front punch, how to how to do a front punch. So they once asked him, what's the hardest thing in karate? And he said, the front punch. So it's it's about like really kind of getting the zen of this kind of basic move down, um, which, it, which like really in some way that I can't fully understand um, satisfies me, challenges me and satisfies me. Hmm. So I like that. Very cool, very cool. So, doctor, what's the number one way people can connect with you online? Uh, go to my website, which is www.drpariser.com, spelled D-R-P-A-R-I-S-E-R. That's actually drpariser.therapy.com. And that's the best way. Um, they can also email me at michael at drpariser.com. Both right. of those ways will work. I really enjoyed this conversation today, doctor, and, and thank you for joining me. And thank you so much. You you look like you're in a wonderful place. You're in Thailand. I'm in Bali, Indonesia, which is a very wonderful place. Oh man, that just looks great. And I and where the water really is blue. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Well, your life is not looking too bad from here either, I'm telling you. <laughs> I'm you know what? I've always wanted to go to the South Pacific. And I it's it's like one of the two or three places at the top of my travel list if the pandemic ever lifts. I'm going to the South Sea. I want to go to Japan and the South Sea Islands and Scandinavia. Those are my those are my top three. Well, if you and ever so, make it to Bali, needless to say, let me know. If you ever make it to California, come on the boat. We'll go take a drive. Brilliant. Brilliant. Thanks a lot, doctor. You're welcome, Zachary. A pleasure talking to you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Humans in Love. If you'd like to learn more about my guests, my work, or you'd like to listen to back episodes of the podcast, please visit humansinlove.com. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to Humans in Love using your podcast app of choice. If you're a fan of Humans in Love and you'd like to help keep the show going and help me spread the word, please take 30 seconds out of your day to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice. Before I let you go, remember that life is short, so let's make it count. And thank you, as always, for your listenership and support. I'll talk to you again very soon.